So good evening, everyone. Anybody here from the First Nations? Any indigenous folks? Anybody here? Today we're celebrating indigenous experience. It's Indigenous Peoples Day. So in honoring and respecting this holiday, I want to begin with a poem by Joy Harjo. She is a member of the Muscogee Nation, the three-time U.S. Poet Laureate, and lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This poem is called The Story Wheel. I leave you to your ceremony of grieving, which is also of celebration. This given, this is given when an honored, humble one leaves behind a trail of happiness in the dark of human tribulation. None of us is above the other in this story of forever. All for that welcome home dance, the most favorite of all, when everyone finds their way back together to dance, eat, and celebrate, and tell story after story of how they fought and played in the story wheel, and how no one was ever really lost at all. I leave you to your ceremony of grieving, which is also of celebration, given when an honored, humble one leaves behind a trail of happiness in the dark of human tribulation. So the title of tonight's talk is Equanimity and the Hindrances, which I thought was kind of a good band name. And then I thought, maybe I should title this talk The Nivaranas. And then I thought, that's also a really good band name, The Nivaranas. So hindrance in Pali is Nivarana. And I like to use this word, I'll explain more later, but we can think about the nivaranas, these hindrances on the path. And I wanted to just review some of all this wonderful advice that Tuera gave us last night. This list was for how to be in the present moment. But actually, these tools apply very well to working with the hindrances. So she suggested softening the mind, bringing ease and gentleness to this moment. She talked about how it's a gradual path. That sometimes we can think, I'm just going to overcome this sleepiness, I'm going to be good. 
But actually, if we see this as a lifetime of practice in working with what hinders us, what obstructs us, we're taking the long view. This is the view of equanimity. Talked about walking being a balancing practice for when we're coming up against difficulty. Using the senses, all these senses that are arising naturally in the body. And also taking a view of the elements. How this body too is made of earth and fire and wind and water. And then so beautifully, the Buddha's story, this is a tradition of story, the story wheel. This practice is a story practice. It's based on this legend of a person's life. So many stories of the Buddha, his relationships, his friends, his family, and the suttas. And the story is based on dukkha, this word you've heard maybe, and we've been using this word dukkha. So the traditional etymology of this word, dukkha, du is a, a bad fit, and ka is a wheel. Here we go with wheels. So dukkha is basically just a bad fitting wheel. So it kind of makes for a bumpy ride. Isn't that kind of what life is? Pretty bumpy. We're being jostled all over the place and we hit a pothole we don't expect. It's uncomfortable so much of the time. So dukkha is this, it can be a very kind of subtle friction, a stress, an unreliability. Broken wheels are not so reliable. The traditional translation of dukkha is suffering, but sometimes that gets a little blown out of proportion. Like, we don't always suffer. Sometimes things are good. But dukkha is pointing to this just little rub. Like, this is pretty good. This moment is okay. But it could be a little better. Or have you had this where you're just, you finally figured it out. Your energy is good. You feel steady. The body is a little lighter. And you know that it's going to change. Right? That's dukkha. This underlying stress. Or the, the kind of the underlying suspicion we have that we're not really in control. That things are ungovernable. That's dukkha. Tuary's beloved son said something really nice about dukkha. I think he said, you know, us Buddhists, we do suffering like poetry. And I love that. That's what we're doing here. So we're not turning away from suffering. We're not practicing away suffering. We're living through it like poetry. So here's another way to think about all the sufferings of hindrances, obstructions. There's five of them traditionally. So we've got sensory desire and ill will, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. 
So these are all ways that we suffer on the cushion. We have stress. We don't like them. But another kind of poetic way the Buddha suggested to think about this is, he said, if you take a handful of salt and you pour it into a small bowl of water, that bowl of water will be very salty. We don't want to drink it. It's going to taste bad. But if you take a handful of salt and you pour it into a huge, wide river, then your heart will be large. It's like pouring just a little bit of salt into a very large heart. No problem. Water's not too salty. So that's a lot of what we're doing in this practice is we have salt. We have hindrances. They come. We're, we're growing a container that's wide enough, a wide river that can hold them, can see their impermanence, can see their nature and be undisturbed, unshaken. And in fact, we need these nivaranas in our practice in order to know how to relate the difficulty. If these didn't show up, wisdom about how to deal with this very rocky, bumpy, ungovernable life We wouldn't have that kind of discernment. So the hindrances are actually very useful as long as we're mindful of them. So anybody feel some sensory desire today, some ill will, some sleepiness, restlessness, doubt? Anybody? Please? Okay. Maybe the whole bundle? A hindrance attack? Anybody have that? Yeah, me too. Definitely. They're inevitable. And we have this saying, this might be Thich Nhat Hanh, what is in the way becomes the way. So we're learning a skillful relationship. Some of the path, the whole of the path, in fact, could be framed as learning how to skillfully relate to ourselves, our hearts, our bodies, learning how to skillfully relate to other people, and learning skillful relationship with the world. So thank goodness that we've got all of these difficulties that help us train in how to relate skillfully. I was sharing with one group today about how we have kind of two levels of experience. We have the content of the moment. Here we are in the present moment. Body, breath, sound, all of these emotions arising. Got the content. And then we have our attitude about it. I like it. I don't like it. I think I'm just going to go to sleep right now. (laughs) Pulling, pushing. And it's that level, that push-pull, that we're talking about when we take our vows of non-judging and non-comparing and non-fixing mind that we did this morning. Or I am not going to relate with those kind of mind states. And in some ways, that's kind of the whole trick of these navaranas when they arise. Can I hold them in mindful awareness, in even loving awareness, without judging, without comparing, and without fixing.
And then we come to a kind of confidence, really. Like when these states of mind arise and there's enough steadiness to know, oh, this is passing restlessness. This is passing desire. Let me just be with this for a little while longer. Get curious about it. The Buddha really said, he said that we discover a way beyond destructive reactivity. That we become patient as the earth. Unmoved by fires of anger or fear. Unshaken as a pillar. Unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. This is possible for us. And I think in a world that's so chaotic and so complex and so difficult, honestly, sometimes we don't even allow ourselves the possibility of this kind of peace. Do you find that in yourself? I'm just restless. I'm just restless. I just got to be restless. I'm hurrying. I'm rushing. How would it be to allow the possibility of a peaceful heart? Maybe even right in the middle of that spinning mind. Dr. King is often reminding us of this. He says, we can walk through the darkest night with the radiant conviction that all things can work together for the good. That is some radical optimism, I would say, akin to the Buddha. Our role models on the path that show us the way. So one of my Tibetan teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, he calls these Nivaranas our beautiful monsters. I love that. They're monstrous, aren't they? When they descend, they can be scary, but also beautiful. And just right there, I think, is the practice instruction that if we can treat these Nivaranas as something a little bit with some space from us, give them an outfit, (laughs) give them a persona, befriend them. Hello, my beautiful monster. Here we are. Then this path becomes one of friendship, one of kindness. Beautiful monsters. So I love in this poem by Joy Harjo, she's saying, here we are in a ceremony of grieving. We could frame practice as that. We're coming together, we're creating ritual space, And we're opening enough spaciousness so the heart can grieve. It can process all of its losses, all its brokenness. The ceremony of grieving is also of celebration when an honored, humble one leaves behind a trail of happiness in the dark of human tribulation. I think the Buddha did that. I think Dr. King did that. Our lineage holder, the Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah, did that. And that is also what we are doing. How would that be to live a life like you're leaving a trail of happiness 
in the dark of human tribulation. So the Buddha gave some very apt similes for what it feels like when we've worked skillfully with these nivaranas and they release. So he said, overcoming sensory desire is like becoming free of debt. Anybody have college debt? Can you imagine what it's going to feel like when that's done? Being free of debt. Overcoming ill will is like recovering from an illness. That overcoming sleepiness is like being released from prison. When restlessness and worry subside, it's like being freed from bondage. And when we've overcome doubt, we've reached a place of safety. And you can play with these similes. The Buddha was a genius at these metaphors that just fit perfectly. So you can play with those. See, when overcome, sleepiness is overcome, when restlessness is overcome, see if it feels like these kind of releases from prison, from bondage, reaching a place of safety, settling back into trust and confidence. Okay, so kamachanda. Kamachanda is desire of the senses. We have this, don't we? And so this attitude of kind of reaching out from the present moment, but I actually want that thing now. I think I just really need a cup of tea. So any form of wanting, longing, yearning, fantasizing, desiring. If clarity is like a still forest pool, desire is like water with dye in it. It's hard to see through the water because it's dyed this color. So before coming here, I was spending some time in Vermont with longtime friends, these friends I've known since they were born, uh, dear kind of adopted sisters. So I babysat for them when I was in high school, and now they're all grown up and living, kind of homesteading in Vermont in the northern part of the state. And we just were lucky we hit, we kept joking that every day was peak of the autumn leaves. Like, oh, it's, I think it's peak today. It's like beautiful autumn colors and very sort of pristine. We were staying in a small cabin off the grid uh, with a pond for swimming. And there were apple trees lining the pond and many, many apples. Apples were falling all throughout the day and the night. And my friends who are very kind of salt of the earth people were gathering them and they were small apples. And the whole project was peeling apples for apple crisp. It's kind of our, they were like, this is your job to peel all the apples. We'll make apple crisp. So the first night we got there, we peeled like a hundred apples and made crisp for everybody. It's really good crisp. And then the next day they're like, I think we're going to make another apple crisp. <laughs> and we were there for seven days 
We had seven days of apple crisp. It's a lot of peeling. But it was so interesting to watch in my mind. Like the first night, there was all this delight and like, oh, we're in Vermont and the trees are beautiful and how like wholesome to be picking up apples off the ground and then peeling them by hand and making them all ready and then feeding this whole group of people. And then day by day, it got to be like a craving, like, okay, going to have crisp again, right? There's all this sensory desire. And the magic of that moment got a little bit jaded by the fact like, got to gather apples and I got to peel them. And there was this tension, this kind of contraction in the body around it. This can happen in the moment you find a perfect walking path and you have such a nice walk, maybe a good smooth session. And then you always kind of planning for how you're going to do it again. I really hope nobody is in that, on that path because that's kind of my walking path. I do the best practice in that spot. Right? We grasp. We cling, we hold. So there was some desire for apple crisp in Vermont, but then, very familiar, I knew there was the overlay then, this happens to me often when I have sensory desire, of shame. Oh, but I'm a Buddhist practitioner. I'm not supposed to want apple crisp. Right? That's greed. That's wanting mind. And so over the week, it was really good practice for me to look not only at the wanting crisp and how magical and amazing it was that we were making that, but how there was all this kind of hidden like shame and guilt, like, oh, but I can't actually want that. So to look at that attitude, if we're wanting something and maybe the mind is really fantasizing about the next vacation or the next whatever you're going to do when you get out of here or the next good practice session even, look at how is the mind holding that wanting? Is there judgment of that wanting? The other side of desire is that it can be wholesome. So we've got kamachanda, which obstructs our mindfulness practice, takes us away from the moment because we're all fantasizing. Dhamma-chanda is this wholesome desire for truth, for the dhamma, for the moment. And we need that kind of ardency. We need that kind of desire. So sometimes I think in this path, desire gets a bad rap because we think, oh, this is all about non-attachment, non-clinging, not supposed to want things. But actually, it's a very strong longing that draws us to practice. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've seen, it's hard. First few days of practice, we have to want it and we have to follow that longing, that ardency. So part of working with chanda is discernment, is knowing when is this a wholesome desire for practice that's onward leading And when is this just a little bit of distraction getting all tied up and wanting sensory experience? Sometimes it's mixed. Sometimes we have such a nice sensory experience in meditation practice. We're feeling all sparkly and blissful. We want that again. And there's a mix of like, well, yeah, that was onward leading. But there's a clinging and a stickiness to it. So the art is to know, okay, there's longing here. Can I settle back, feel this in the body, trust the heart's deeper knowing, and hold it with a lot of spaciousness, 
right? That handful of salt in a big, wide river. Just knowing wanting. No problem here. No problem. So this poem, I love this poem. This is about uh, kind of the longing that is like the essence of life, really. This is by wonderful poet Linda Hogan, who is a member of the Chickasaw Nation. It's called Geraniums. Life is burning in everything. In red flowers abandoned in an empty house. The leaves nearly gone. Curtains and tenants gone. But the flowers red and fiery are there and singing. But the flowers red and fiery are there and singing. Let us out. Even dying, they have fire. Imprisoned, they open. So like our own lives blooming, exploding, wanting out, wanting love, water, wanting. Imprisoned, they open. So like our own lives blooming, exploding, Wanting out, wanting love, water, wanting. We want to get out of that prison, don't we? And that longing is trustworthy. That kind of force, that life force, that's like the force that pushes the bulbs up through the frozen ground in the spring. We can trust that, that tejas like life force in us, the prana, the chi that Hakim is teaching us how to work with. So wanting is not bad. We just have to learn how to channel it towards that which is truly wholesome, that which is happy making, because we're a little bit confused about what really leads to lasting happiness. So the second Nivarana is called Vyapada in Pali. And it's very simple. It's ill will. Just not wishing well. It's ill will. Grumpiness, aversion, could be fear, anxiety. Just not really liking this moment. This could be ill will towards ourselves. It could be ill will towards the situation towards others. The metaphor for this one is like water that's boiling. Very hard to see clearly when our mind is all caught up in ill will. This is wrong, that's wrong, I'm wrong. So when we start to get very curious and mindful of this, the nature of this ill will is that we notice, it's sort of funny, it magnifies. So like first, we're kind of wake up, we're grumpy, and then the weather's wrong, or we burn our tongue on the tea or something, then that's wrong, and then we're late to practice, that's wrong. And then we hate ourselves because we think, I'm not practicing well. We judge the whole thing, and then we think, oh, this whole place is, whole retreat is wrong. 
So it sort of like snowballs. That's the nature of ill will. We see this on a collective scale. So here we're training to learn the machinations, the nature of ill will here in this laboratory so that we can become to recognize it and to know it for what it is in the collective. Certain people, full of ill will, sow more ill will. And when we start to become mindful of this ill will, there, there can be a little bit of humor in it. Right? Just like Tuere this morning. It's so light. It's, okay, somebody's snoring. That's what's happening. Right? We can make light of this grumpy mind that's like, can't meditate because my sound is happening. Right? So this happens for me all the time in my relationship. I can feel this kind of righteousness and this ill will, like, you're wrong. But when I'm mindful of it, it's very difficult to keep arguing because I can see that it's just like all this. But also there's this momentum to it. I'm like, I know that this is just ill will, but I'm right. <laughs> and there's a kind of like, even when it's been recognized, it still has this kind of push. And then it makes our arguments kind of funny because at a certain point, you know, you just kind of give up and you're like, yeah, this is a little bit foolish. I know. So it's that. Mindfulness is like alchemy. It's transforming. We can be all stuck and hot and ill will in one moment. And the next moment with recognition and a little bit more spaciousness and awareness, we see it in a totally different light. And all of a sudden, there's a kind of friendliness for that mind that was all kind of tight and grumpy. That's how it transforms. So Sayada Utejaniya, who's one of my most beloved teachers, he's a Burmese monk, he says, right attitude allows you to accept, acknowledge, and observe whatever is happening, whether pleasant or unpleasant, in a relaxed and alert way. Do not try to create anything such as a positive mind state, because trying to create something is greed. Do not reject what is happening, such as a negative mind state, because rejecting what is happening is aversion. So we just want to stay very alert in the body and mind to what's happening when we have ill will. How is the body feeling? How is it coloring our experience? And then as we grow our capacity to be with it, We can trust that mindfulness will take care of the rest. Mm, Okay, so Tina Mida is the next one. Tina is sleepiness. So, of course, the body. The body gets sleepy. And then Mida is a kind of dullness of the mind. So sleepiness and dullness. I heard from some of you today that maybe there's a little bit of that. Here, showing up. Very normal. Very normal, especially in the first few days of the retreat, to feel incredibly sleepy and dull. So in one of the groups today, we had a really interesting discussion about this experience. Maybe some of you have had this in your sleepy moments on the cushion when the mind kind of gets soft 
and it feels like it's sinking a little bit. And then there's, you're not asleep, but there's like dreamy kind of images and stories coming. You have this? You're like kind of in this zone. It feels kind of pleasant, but also hard to stay mindful. So there's a very particular name for that state in the Buddhist psychology, and that is the bhavanga, the bhavanga consciousness. And it's important It happens, we go through the bhavanga every time we fall asleep at night. And also we go through it as we come out of sleep into wakefulness. Also, in the Buddhist cosmology, we head into the bhavanga as we're dying. We go through that state. So as we train a continuity of mindfulness, of knowing what's happening moment by moment, if we head into that dreamy, soft state, if we stay mindful, this has incredible implications, doesn't it? To train how to stay aware as we fall asleep could potentially mean that we could stay aware as we die. I don't know. I'm just saying, maybe, right? Why not try? Especially since Tuari said this is a lifelong path and then right at the moment, right, we're going to ding. So that might happen in the bhavanga, actually. So if you feel your mind drifting into that space, there can be a very light knowing of it. There's like most of you is kind of just sinking and, you know, sleepy. But there's a very light knowing, okay, bhavanga. You can even use that, that label. This is the bhavanga. Or you can just label sleepiness, kind of dreamy. You can know it. See, just experiment. It's a very light mindfulness. It's not heavy. But see if you can stay with that. See if you can go all the way in, stay with it for a while, and then be aware as you come out of that state. Mindfulness can track it all the way through. Really wonderful practice. Very powerful practice. So it's actually not a bad thing if you find yourself getting sleepy. Often, this is a sign that samadhi is growing. Samadhi is a, it's hard to translate. Often it's translated as concentration. It's a little bit of a coarse translation. It's more like a gathering. And we've been speaking about the jhanas, right? Some of you might have heard this word, jhanas. This is just a type of practice that leads to a very deep kind of absorption, a concentrative absorption. And sleepiness or calm is necessary for more samadhi in the mind and the body. So for me, I've had retreats where I was practicing samadhi and inevitably every session, I would go through this little period of getting sleepy and then the mind would drop into a deeper state of samadhi. Calm is an awakening factor. So it's not horrible if you take a little nap on the cushion and then come back awake and keep practicing. You might find that there's a little bit more clarity after going through that phase of sleep. Also, I kind of think the first few days of retreat should just be sleep retreat. Like you should just be sleeping in your room, go, you know, trudge down to get food, trudge back up to your room, sleep some more. <laughs> I think we're just at such a deficit 
that we would do ourselves well for having just a couple of days of sleep retreat. So permission in these days to sleep as much as you need. You might just need to sleep. That's okay. At a certain point, and this is part of your discernment, you can discern whether it truly is exhaustion and fatigue or whether the sleepiness and dullness are acting as a kind of shudder that's a kind of a little bit dissociative and stopping us from feeling or seeing something that's kind of simmering underneath the surface there. So this can happen in practice. In fact, it's protective. It's okay. It's kind of a wisdom in the system to be like, whoa, okay, we're getting into big rapids here. I don't think I actually really want to feel that feeling right now. I'm just going to go to sleep. So it's okay, but we want to know that that's happening. So one way to discern if it's truly sleepiness or if there's a kind of like shutting down is to look at how is the mind right before you get sleepy? What's happening in the mind? What are you touching in on that then the mind's like, oh, nope, (laughs) sleep. And to stay very gentle with this because it's not about pushing. We don't have to go super deep and figure out all the things, all the problems. No, sometimes that dullness is protection and it's okay. You can be mindful of a freeze state this is a huge breakthrough for me because I freeze a lot if I'm scared or if I'm entering difficult territory, my mind will just freeze. You can be mindful all the way through the freeze. It's pleasant. Don't have to feel anything. <laughs> but you want to be mindful of that. Again, the nivarana is there to be known. There to be known. So use your discernment. What is really happening? Why is the mind sleepy? And see what happens. See what you can see. Hmm. So I'll tell you about this. Some of you might remember this story from last year. So Sharon Salzberg calls sleepiness and dullness the ooze. You're sort of like oozing around. And I did some research on slime mold. (laughs) It's amazing. So at the Queen's University in Canada... They demonstrated that slime mold is fantastically efficient at finding the quickest route to food. When he placed rolled oats over the country's population centers and a slime mold culture over Toronto, the organism grew its way across the Canadian map, sprouting tentacles that mimicked the Canadian highway system. This experiment has been replicated in Japan, the UK, and the United States. So slime mold is not a plant or an animal, it's a fungus. It's a soil-dwelling amoeba, a brainless, single-celled organism, often containing multiple nuclei. So sometimes we feel like slime mold. And it's really okay. That's okay. We just want to be mindful of the ooze, right? Still an organism. We can wish them well. Do meta for the slime mold. And then lastly, there are some very practical antidotes to feeling sleepy. Standing up. And some of you I've seen already are doing this in the hall. Sometimes it can feel a little funny to like, everybody's sitting silently and I'm standing. But it is such a wonderful way to work with sleepiness. Just stand up. You can stand for five, ten minutes. And then sit back down. Notice it really brings the energy up, standing. Open your eyes. 
that brings energy. Um, mindful movement can bring energy. So you can play with that a little bit. Next one is Udacha Kukacha. It's kind of fun to say. Restlessness and worry, and it sounds a little bit like it is, right? Udacha Kukacha. So restlessness is this, like, in the body, you have too much energy. And the um, worry is that kind of energy in the mind. Anxiety. Uh, sometimes it can be remorse, regret, and this kind of, like, ruminating, right? There's just too much movement in the mind. So restlessness and worry. And this is likened to, okay, so for the sleepiness and dullness, it's water that's grown over with algae. And for restlessness and worry, it's water that's kicked up by wind. You can feel that, just this kind of restlessness. So this is kind of what drives, I think, our society, is restlessness, right? We're caffeinated. We've got all our devices. We're checking Instagram. We're emailing. We're making phone calls. We're texting. The way that we live our lives tends to feed restlessness. So when we get here and we say, give us your phones. Give up technology. Less words. Silence. Simplicity. Sometimes the system is like, oh gosh, no, no, no. I'm going to just be very restless inside. Anybody felt that? Or we get like very busy on retreat. Okay, I got to go down and I got to brush my teeth and I got to fold my clothes. There's like nothing to do. But actually we have our whole to-do list that we've listed. So again, a sense of humor about this. It's like we've been going at this pace and we suddenly hit the cliff and we're wily coyote still kind of cycling in the air, right? We have to adjust to a different rhythm and a different metabolism, so I spoke a little bit about the energy body and walking, and I had a note, a question to hear a little bit about more about this. Energy body is very related to both sleepiness and restlessness. So sometimes we can be moving very slowly, we're going through the structure of the day, and still it's like whatever we do, we slow down, we have a cup of tea, we're doing our schedule very well, and we still have this kind of energetic restlessness. Anybody feel that? It's like we can't turn it off. It's just going, this little motor inside. So that's just energy body movement. That's just how the energy is moving in the body. And it's very organic. It's very kind of wild, right? So we can't force it. If we try to force it to be different, it can get worse. It can push back. What we resist persists. So we want to grow the container, again, be very spaciousness with this restlessness, and be patient with knowing that all of the conditions here, the nature, the sounds, the momentum of the sangha, the pace, the silence, all of those conditions are inviting our energy body to calm, to settle. And it might just take a little while, you know, it's just the pace we're at all the time. So it takes some training, some patience, some trust that over time things will kind of clear out and settle energetically. Some of you know I was in a, a long retreat through some of the years of COVID in a cabin in Oregon. And it's so fun to watch the animal life up there. A lot of squirrels. 
And the squirrels are constantly moving. They're very busy. They're gathering acorns. They're burying the acorns. They're covering up the acorns. Then they're digging them back out again. They're like, right? And that was sort of fun for me to watch as my object of meditation is just like, wow, my mind is like that too. I'm like burying this thing over here to make sure I'll have enough of that. It's like this restlessness in some ways is just trying to make things okay. Like I'm going to have enough to eat and I'm going to be warm and I'm going to have shelter, have the medicine I need. So we can have a lot of compassion for that kind of restlessness and worry, the anxiety, right? We just want to be okay. So spaciousness, compassion, gentleness of mind, settling back into the present moment. It's just restlessness. And then through seeing these nivaranas, we start to see the nature, the three characteristics of impermanence. They come and go. We're not always restless. Sometimes we're sleepy. Other times we're wanting. Other times we have ill will. They come and go. They're dukkha. They're stressful. And also we start to see their not-self nature. That it's not really me or mine having any of these experiences. Okay, last one is doubt, vichikicha. This can be doubt about the practice, doubt about ourselves, our capacity. It can be doubt about the teachings, the teachers, the retreat center, the style, the lineage. And this one is muddy water. It's water that's all stirred up with mud. It's in some ways the most insidious nivarana. So this is a poem by Sorad Seperi, who is an Iranian poet. And they say, let's not muddy the water. Imagine that close by a dove is drinking from it. Or in a distant grove, a finch is washing its wings in it. Or in some village, it fills a storage jar. Let's not muddy the water. Perhaps this flowing stream runs by the foot of a poplar tree and eases some heart's grief. The walls are low in the village upstream. Blue there is really blue. When buds blossom, they know those people. What a village it must be. May its streets be filled with music. Those people by the stream have left it clear. Let's not muddy the water. So it's okay to have doubt. Doubt will arise. But the classical antidote is to actually reason with yourself. Okay, I'm doubting the efficacy of this practice. I'm doubting my ability to do it. To consciously reflect on times when you were able to do it on maybe ways when the practice did help, on something that was true that you heard about in terms of the practice. So we're cultivating moment by moment this kind of trust in the moment and trust in our ability to meet it. And that's really all it is. We don't have to futurize. We don't have to think about how the retreat's going to go on day nine. We're like, can I just be with this moment in a very gentle, soft way? This kind of self-doubt can be very undermining. 
And I've heard from some of you, I've had this for years, it's like, well, the Buddha lived in a different culture and he taught mostly monastics. Our lives are so full and so busy. I don't think it's really possible to gain full liberation in this lifetime with these conditions here. Or maybe we're doubting it's too comfortable. It's too beautiful. We're supposed to be like really in pain, right? Like the monks back then, they practiced in the rain, the snow, and the tigers. Like this is luxurious. I don't think it's working. Right? So all of that is simply doubt. And it comes disguised as wisdom that we get more and more familiar with that flavor, that undertow of doubting mind. And we can use our logical reasoning. Like, wait, look, all these people are doing it. All these people are walking this path to its end. When I feel this kind of self-doubt, I always reflect on Deepama, who was this amazing Bengali woman who went through very deep hardship and grief, lost her husband, her children. She had so much loss. And she went very deep very quickly because her heart was ready. Very deep realization. Just as a layperson, lived in Calcutta, So there's so many examples of awakening in the very conditions that we're in. And we have to trust that the Dhamma is everywhere. It's not at some other retreat or some other lineage or some other place in Asia. It's living in us. It's right here, right here. This is why the practice groups are so beautiful because we can see, we hear the insights. It's popping up right here in this room. And so we've been talking about the story of the Buddha, the story wheel, and how this beautiful myth and the night of his enlightenment, he sat underneath a tree and he was assailed by all the Nivaranas, that all of the sensory desire and seduction came and he met it unshakable, so steady. Saw through right that. Then he saw all this ill will and war, conflict arise, mind very steady. And then I'm sure he got really sleepy. He was sitting all through the night, right? He was thinking a lot. Maybe he had some restlessness. He was categorizing. And then the very last one, the biggest Nivarana came, and that was doubt, right? Come questioning, who are you to be sitting under this tree getting free? And so beautiful in this earth-touching gesture, the Buddha touched the earth and said, as the earth is my witness, This is my seat, and I'm going to get free. And then the story goes that the earth quaked, and the angels sang, and the light sparkled, and that was the moment. So that can be us in the moment of being assailed by self-doubt, just like the Buddha had. We can place our hands on the earth in the present moment, just this, and claim this as our birthright, this potential for freedom, full capacity to awaken. So just in conclusion, when we greet our Nivaranas with a kind of dignity and respect as our beautiful monsters, and we practice a kind of familiarity with them, like, oh, hello, little sleepiness, hello, little desire, It's creating a healthy relationship 
with the heart and its machinations. We learn the steadiness, a spaciousness, a softening, a patience, trust. And then they teach us, they teach us about compassion, about the nature of change, the nature of unreliability, the nature of the impersonal quality of all of it. So they become our allies on the path, actually. They become our most valued uh, visitors. And then moment by moment of presence, we really trust that this path is ours and it can be walked to its end. That we can discover freedom just right here, moment by moment. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two and let the words just pass through. In this story of forever, all for that welcome home dance, the most favorite of all, when everyone finds their way back together to dance, eat, and celebrate, and tell story after story of how they fought and played in the story wheel, and how no one was ever really lost at all. Thank you for your kind attention. And so we have time for some walking. And we'll come back to chant and close out the evening together. <laughs> 